Coming to you from the road itself, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. And for the next two months, we are coming to you from the road. We are on pilgrimage to understand the story of immigration, exploitation, and labor in the U.S., Over the course of the next two episodes, we will stand on the land where whips cracked backs to bleed more work from black and brown bodies. We will stand in the literal valley of dry bones, a mass grave filled with the bodies of men and boys swept up in the post-antebellum terror of peonage. We will speak with faith leaders pushing back against the exploitation of migrants and asylum seekers in America's detention system today. Now, the thing about a pilgrimage is that it's different than a tour or a trip. Trips are all about the fun pictures you take to savor the memories you share. And then tours are all about the places you go to to learn stuff. But pilgrimage is about the whole experience, especially the in-between times. And pilgrimage is about transformation. And transformation happens in the in-between, on the road itself. You will join us in the car in our own conversations, our processing, and in our spiritual practices that help us hold the brokenness of our world. I called three friends to ask them to join me on pilgrimage. Sandy Ovalle serves as the immigration campaign manager at Sojourners. She and I will be conversation partners on the road. You may also hear from our sound engineer and producer, David Dalt, who will also serve as our driver for part of the time. Hello. Thank you very much, David. And Elise Gira, our videographer, who comes to us from the work of the people, the group helping us produce a corresponding four-part film curriculum from the experience. In late 2013, I fasted on liquids at first, and then only water for 22 days with the Fast for Families, a spiritual fast for immigration reform. It was the most spiritual experience of my life. The following year, the Fast for Families chartered two buses and embarked on a several-month journey, stopping in towns across the country to encourage and equip immigrants and advocates to move Congress to pass reform. I joined the bus tour toward the end, actually, in Richmond, Virginia. Also helped, you know, push it off in Los Angeles. We got a call asking for one or two core fasters to drive out to Culpeper, Virginia, to speak with a group of migrant workers there. Several of us piled into a car and drove for what felt like forever to Culpeper. As we round through country highways and back roads, we spotted along the roadside civil war markers, almost every hundred feet it felt like. In this land, it was layered with memories. As we wound closer to the Lutheran church, migrant workers sang songs of praise and worship in Spanish. And I remembered in a flash, my mom once told me, we had ancestors in Culpeper before the civil war. We don't know if they were enslaved or free. We don't know if they worked inside a master's home, in the fields, or if they worked their own land. All we know is they were of African descent in Virginia before emancipation. Whatever they did, their labor and its fruit were not compensated for their full value. They were exploited. I stood before the packed room that only spoke Spanish and shared with them through an interpreter that their fight is my fight. They are being exploited on the same land where my ancestors were exploited in the days of slavery. Both women and men wept. They understood. 
The Whitney Plantation is one of few plantation museums in the nation with an exclusive focus on the lives of enslaved people. We are joined by Executive Director Ashley Rogers and Director of Research Dr. Ibrahim Asek. Uh, now, the colonization of uh, Louisiana started in, uh, in 1699 from Canada with the brothers Bienville and Iberville. But the real colonization, that's when you bring people to do the job. Yeah. So they started with indentured servants. Uh-huh. They brought over here a first shipment of uh, you know, a few uh, enslaved people from uh, the Caribbean in 1812. Okay. And the first African didn't come until uh, 1819. So, but, so but, an, an indentured servant is a white slave. Right. So when you go to the port of Florian, the port of the company, before you get on the boat, you have to sign a contract mm-hmm. that turns you into a slave for three years. Mm-hmm. You work for the company. And after three years, if you survive, they give you land. Mm-hmm. They may give you land and also help you to get established. Yes. But for three years, you are not free. Mm-hmm. And the company, if the company doesn't need you, mm-hmm. the company can sell you to a, a farmer, and you work for that farmer until the end of your engagement. Wow. But like I told you earlier, it does not compare with uh, enslaved Africans. By the numbers, mm-hmm. there were very, very few compared to Africans who were brought over here by the thousands. Mm-hmm. How, many, how many Africans were enslaved here by 1861, by the time of the start of the Civil War? But at that time, there were very few Africans, you know, the, the international slave trade had stopped, was uh, ended since uh, the early 19th century. Okay. So we still had Africans, like there was one African still living here, mm-hmm. but they were not anymore the majority. The majority came from the East Coast at that time, from the East Coast of the United States. Right, because from, from Because Virginia. of the, the domestic slave trade. Right. But uh, we know that for the French slave trade, about 6,000 people were brought over here most of them from Senegambia. And for the total of Africans who were uh, b- deported and enslaved in Louisiana, mm-hmm. I think we say about 22,000. It was only b- b- between 1763 at the end of the French regime in 1808, 20,000 people were brought over here from Africa. That makes sense actually, because mm. only the entire total of Africans brought to the United States was only 400,000 in all 256 years of slavery. Mm-hmm. So we're around uh, about seven hundred and fifty thousand. But yeah, really? but yeah, but um, he and I think he's speaking mostly of so in terms of Africans. Here. Yeah, that's different. Africans, Africans yeah, yeah. But, Africans. But I by, think it's a twenty, right? Maybe on those nine, uh, yeah, six thousand brought by the French, yeah. or maybe twenty six, twenty six thousand. But by eighteen sixty one, the vast majority of people who were enslaved here in Louisiana would be multi generational. Mm. Um, people who were born here and whose parents and even grandparents had been born here. So, of course, across the entire United States, there were roughly four million enslaved people in 1861. And in Louisiana, the population was somewhere north of 300,000 um, enslaved people, uh, which is not all of the African descended people. Right, that's different because there were free people of color throughout the United States and a large population here in Louisiana. There was a large population of free people of African descent here in Mm -hmm. Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana and South Carolina, but Louisiana had one of the larger populations. And South Carolina. South Carolina. So tell me why. Why why there? Because I know that in Virginia, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure about North Carolina, they passed laws that if you were born in Virginia after 1808, and you were free, you could not stay in Virginia, you had to leave. But if you were born before 1808, then you could stay. It's really weird, mm. but that, that law was I'm passed there. I'm not familiar with that. With North, so North Carolina is my home state. I know that they also had a population of free people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not an expert on when all those different laws were passed. I will say that various laws restricted, um, let's say, citizenship for free people of color. This is why the 14th Amendment is important, right? The 14th Amendment, which establishes birthright citizenship, is to establish once and for all that black people can be citizens of this nation because uh, various states throughout the country were trying very hard to uh, export or expel their Mm -hmm. African-descended people. were saying that they couldn't even come in the first place, uh-huh. right? So there were there were already problems with that. 
Um, and there were problems of, you know, all these formerly enslaved people, do they get citizenship rights? Um, and what are the what are the qualifications for citizenship rights? What makes a citizen? And so birthright citizenship is important in that respect. That's it's funny because birthright citizenship, of course, comes up again with regard to immigration, right? Um, we now people are questioning: Should we have birthright citizenship? Do people get to be citizens just because they're born here? And they bring up um, examples of other countries, but there's no need to look at other countries because we have to look at our own history and what we've done to people of color. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer is yes: We need birthright citizenship, of course. Mm -hmm. We have a very strong precedent of showing that we will try to remove citizenship rights from people of color, if not, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, make, I, I have no doubt that if we create a situation where we create a, an idea that brown people coming from Central and South America don't get to be citizens just because they were born here, what's to stop us from doing the same thing to African-descended people the way we did in the past, right? Yeah. But for sure, in, uh, in 1857, they passed a law that forbade the emancipation of black people. They black people it. could not be mm -hmm. here. They could not be emancipated anymore. And we see that that was the time when people petitioned the government, the local government of Louisiana to, to be allowed to send their slaves abroad, like to Mexico. Mostly, mostly in, the, in the area of Veracruz. Mm -hmm. Since they cannot be free here, so yeah. they petitioned vote to the government to be allowed to send them. And of course, the people who do that, usually they, they send their own uh, like uh, concubines, their own children, yeah, yeah. colored children. Like uh, one of them was uh, Marcion Belfort Heidel, mm -hmm. the great grandson of the founder of this plantation in 1859. He wrote a letter to the legislature of Louisiana asking for permission to move his uh, mulatto, some mulatres in French, and seven kids to Mexico. So he had fathered seven mm -hmm. children mm -hmm. with an enslaved woman yeah. who he wanted to give manumission to by moving to Mexico? Mm -hmm. In other words, he wanted because to free he, he her could, and his he family. Because he could not free them mm -hmm. here. He could not it was free them forbidden, here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? Did they say yes or no? Yeah, they said yes, they leave. They left. So now mm -hmm. they are in Veracruz. And there, there, are, there are many people also who left, who had yeah. to left Louisiana and I go to that area of Veracruz. Which is about, I'm talking about the region of Veracruz. Yeah, yeah. You have the capital of Veracruz, you have Tampico, one of the port city. Mm -hmm. And until today, people are there and you see their uh, family name like Defosa, like, uh, you know, all the, uh, the, the family name you find here in Louisiana, they are over there in Veracruz. And now yeah. people are trying to, to petition or to maybe to sue the government to be allowed to come back to the United States. And they're not, they're not considered citizens here. Uh, no, they are oh. Mexicans. Oh. <laughs> they are considered as, as Mexicans. Wow. Now there's a movement over there of people mm -hmm. who are trying to get the right to move back to the United States. That's uh, amazing. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Wow. So, I mean, another question I have is what, and this is for you, Dr. Sek, what factors in Africa and Europe contributed to the rise of the transatlantic slave trade in the first place? Money. Money. To, to make money. Mm-hmm. You know? Was it, was it the wealthy trying to make more wealth? Was it in the midst of an economic downturn in Europe that caused them to go outward and try to expand? Or do you know that? No, it that? is wealth and also the, 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 the real estate business. People were conquering the land all, all around the world. It was the age If of you want to conquer land and you want to develop it, own it, for your children, your grandchildren, for the next generations, mm -hmm. you need labor. Mm -hmm. That's quite simple. Mm -hmm. So here's another question. This is for both of you guys. Can we talk about the construct of race? I mean, I know that I mean, white supremacy. Um, how did the institution of chattel slavery function to protect white supremacy? Yes. So slavery is, it created the what we have now, our inheritance, which is white supremacy. White supremacy does not exist unless you have an explicit racial hierarchy. And that racial hierarchy was built through the system of slavery, which was principally an economic labor system. And so we have in this country a very clear divide or a very clear idea of who people's ancestors were or who, 
who we imagine their ancestors were based on the color of their skin right now, right? Mm -hmm. We understand that if people have, if people are black in this country, mm -hmm. even if it's not true, right? Some, there are plenty of black people in this country who do not have enslaved ancestors, mm -hmm. but they nonetheless carry the mark of that, right? Yeah. Just the same way that there are plenty of white people in this country who don't have slave-owning ancestors, right. and yet they carry not only the mark of it, but also the privilege associated with it. The benefits of it. The benefits of it. Yeah. Right. But slavery was, in this country, a racialized, hierarchical labor system that created in our minds an idea of who is the right color to do the right type of work. The creation of race. I mean, I would be very interested to hear in Africa, mm. in Senegal, where you're from, I mean, before slavery, were there categories for race? No. Okay. We didn't even call it Africa. <laughs> the Africa is a foreign name, that's Arabic too. Oh. Africa was a name for just a portion of Africa which is today Tunisia. They call it Frikia. Oh and then it was extended for the rest of the continent. Because it was from the perspective mm -hmm. of the of the Europeans yeah. who were coming down from We have India. just in the really traditionally what we have uh -huh. is just the concept of uh, Need that I'm, I'm speaking well of now. Need just means human being. The 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 being that is lit, enlightened. Yeah. That means lit. Wow. You are not an animal. And humanity. That I have a cousin. She calls me. She said I'm a white person. Because I was educated by the white people. I went to their school. I live in their country, and maybe when they see me behave in my in my village like that, I behave mostly like a, a European. Then, uh, wow, that's why they call me white. They should call yeah. me a white person, you know. Yeah. So it is uh, the race was created mostly within uh, the framework of slavery, mm -hmm. but race is just a tool. You manipulate it to justify the unjustifiable and you let people believe that these people are inferior and they deserve to be enslaved. Mm. Even after, uh, between the end of uh, the chattel slavery and people being deported and then colonized, you know, Africa was later conquered and people became slaves in their own country. Yeah. They even went into giving a scientific basis to racism. Yeah. They build all theories and they call it science. They even went and made fake uh, skeletons to sustain their own theory of the evolution of mankind. They made fake ones. I never yeah, knew that. They made fake ones and buried them in the ground and said, Oh, look what we found. Wow. Africa is not the cradle of mankind. They knew Africa is the cradle of mankind. Is the, the, the cradle of mankind. All human beings came from Africa. Religion came from out of Africa. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But how can you call them benighted people? And then we say they are the roots of civilization are there. Another narrative. Yeah, and people still use it today for their own business. So I think uh, white supremacism is rooted into slavery and colonialism. What are the through lines between chattel slavery and the migrant worker system today and the exploitation of migrant workers today? <laughs> that The similarity yeah. is just that both of them are, being, uh, are exploited. Yeah. Their labor is stolen from them. The slaves don't get anything. He may get some, some little money, like working on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Something like that. And uh, the migrant worker also is deeply exploited. I think they gave him just enough to survive. So. Something that strikes me is I remember a conversation that I had with an. Um... <laughs>
These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Have you ever been on a pilgrimage? The very first one I ever did changed my life forever. We do a lot of things here on Freedom Road, but the most powerful of all is pilgrimage. Freedom Road journeys roll through cohesive stories and help us understand better how the world broke and what it will take to be whole. Our absolute favorite thing is to leverage the power of pilgrimage to strengthen groups' capacity to do justice in their communities. Check out the show notes for this episode. Click the link to learn more about Freedom Road pilgrimages and contact us through the website if you'd like to join us on Freedom Road. So the thing that really struck me in the midst of all of this, <laughs> yeah, it's a big slurp that you just took out of that water. No, it sounded so much like, <laughs> but worse than it was. <laughs> I shocked myself. <laughs> you know what? You know what Dr. Sek was saying about laughter? It's like, I feel like actually there's a, yeah, it's so overwhelming. You have to laugh in order now that's the 10 okay. right okay. there ah. holy jesus that was us so we got to make a u-turn up there u-turn. okay that will get us. <laughs> that's okay we will do it yeah. all right so but what dr sex said about laughter is really true like this it's so deep that it's like you need to take the valve out you need to let air out otherwise you will explode and so that's real but I'll tell you, one of the things that really hit me was that, like, hearing Joy, the fact that, that Dr. Joy, she has, she still lives in the area, and her ancestors were on the same plantation, and now she works on that plantation in order to maintain and help people to understand slavery. It, it struck me how different my experience is than those who have ancestors who stayed in the South. Because my ancestors, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, literally are the ones who did it, they ran. They fled North. My great-grandfather fled North from Kentucky and Indiana and never went back. Didn't even talk about it. They wouldn't even talk about it. It was so bad. And so, so as a result... I am not connected to those roots in the same way that Joy is. Yeah, that was so surprising to see her still be in that and to be aware and conscious. Like, I wonder how that story was passed down Yeah, you know, to help them remind. Like, what do you do to keep your family going and living in the same situation, knowing that your oppressors are like one block down? <laughs> they literally live, they live around the corner. Yeah. I don't know how. Like the kind of survival mechanisms. Yeah. Um, work that you have to do internally to live through that. But it also, I think part of me was also really, and I, I mean, I, I don't want to make too much of this because it wasn't, it wasn't the entire experience, but part of me was also really um, struck by the reality of, well, I, I actually, I want to stop. Well, okay, I'll just say it. That, because my ancestors migrated north, they actually have a, a sense of kinship in experience with the migrant workers because there's a disconnection from the land that happens when you do that because you're no longer connected to the land and have a relationship with the land in the same way that Joy and her family have a relationship with Wallace, Louisiana. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, but I wonder also if like being away from the land also allows you to 
have a different set of lenses, you know, mm. because when you're away from the land, like kind of like, you know, a fish doesn't know that it's a fish until they're out of the water. And so even being away, like as, as, as people who are no longer in the lands where we were born, mm-hmm. it just gives you like a different panorama. Like you can become more critical. You can become, you can do some exploration of your own story in ways that when you're embedded in it, it's, it's harder. Not, it's not impossible, but it's harder to do that. And so I yeah. think that this is why I also was fascinating, fascinated by uh, Dr. Seg, who yeah. is a man from Senegal, yeah. which is where a lot of the people that were enslaved were brought from. Yes. And he's now doing this here, explaining in this land that is not his land, helping us understand, you know. And so it just kind of tells me, I think a lot of times we, um, we just center on like, I just find it fascinating that he, you know, as an immigrant, is is now helping us understand this story of people that are from here. And not just an immigrant, but an immigrant with this connection back to where people came from. And says, like, people from, a person from that land, from where people were uprooted to be enslaved in the U.S., Mm -hmm. now is here, has all these knowledge and mm. ability to engage people and and it's mm. it's someone who had this not stop could have been you know one of them so yes it it literally could have been him oh but i have to say the moment the moment for me that literally well two moments led me to tears one was the children in the church and the children, the monument to the children, that did lead me to tears. There's something incredibly overwhelming, realizing that more than 2,000 children died. Under the age of two, did he say? Under the age of two, within a 40-year period, just a 40-year period that they chose randomly in this parish. In this parish. Yeah. That says a lot about the conditions. I mean, think about if the child mortality rate was like that today, like what we would say about that town, that parish, we would, you know, close it down. (laughs) If it was white people, think about that. If it was white people who had that mortality rate in any town today, let's say in Georgetown, Georgetown, Washington, D.C., or, you know, in Playa Vista, Los Angeles. Mm If 2,000 white children died within a 40-year period in Playa Vista before each reaching the age of two, how would we respond? What would we think? And Lisa, I would want to think that we would respond well, but it's like the reality of today, and I don't have the exact statistics, but I know that our mortality rates for a developed nation are really high. Mm, um, yeah. And, and so that's very sad and I wish we were doing more in those fronts but I, I think the realities is also I don't know it's, it's, it's kind of like a weird dichotomy because on the one hand um, I feel as a non-American that there is a great focus from like particularly like white families that are very focused around their children and yeah, like yeah, protection yeah. and everything about oh the child God, and yes. the child like helicopter parents yes. yes yes and then on the other hand there are you know children in cages or children detained in homestead today that are away from their parents, that have no access to medical care, that have no access to illegal representation, to education, to mental, mental health care, et cetera, or to their families. And how many children have we already and had die in cages, in detention, mm-hmm. at our southern border today? Like as in, in the last one year, not 40 years, in the last one year. In the last year. months, yeah, in the last few months. Few months. Um, like since December, I think it's uh, when we start counting these six, um, six children that we know of. Yeah. Um, most of them actually are indigenous Guatemalan, like five of them are indigenous Guatemalan uh, children, which tend to be people that are really connected with, to the land, people who um, are working and working their lands back in their home countries, mm-hmm. people who cannot longer sustain their lands because as we've exploited the earth mm-hmm. um, and produced climate change, their land cannot produce anymore, so they can't feed their families and found themselves in here. And so I would want to think that as we see how people are dying, that we would respond and that, that our nation would do something, specifically children. Yeah. But I think we, 
we're not like it's like children are in detention today we're not doing much about it and we don't do much um, but i think yeah. if they were white children they would if they were little english children little british children come on now yeah if they were little irish children if they were if they were little white children people wouldn't only cry it would not happen yeah but because they are little brown children it really goes back to what Ashley, Dr. Um, Ashley was saying that it's the, it's the hierarchy. It's what, well, what I often call the hierarchy of human belonging. And what she was talking about is racial hierarchy is needed in order to enforce the economic system that depends on free labor and low-cost labor. And when you talk about a hierarchy of human belonging... So brown people have been cast in the role of those who are expendable, those who suffer, those who are not really fully human for the sake of the economy, white people's economy. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> so we don't cry. We don't cry when brown children die in detention. Yeah, that's... Um... It's wow. devastating. It's it's the the sense of their being only is good as long as it serves um, the system, as long as it serves the preservation of people that look like me, or mm. that look, you know. And so, yeah, uh, expendable. It's it's um, it's the oppression of the image of God, right? Like yeah. the image of God didn't quite reach them, or. Um, they didn't quite transfer there. Wow. You know, another piece, another time, a moment that really struck me. So there were two. There was the children. The second one was when we were standing at the wall of the names of people who lived on the plantation. And there was Samba. And I asked him, because he was talking about how Samba is a name. It's, it's a man's name in, in Senegal. Yeah, in Senegal. And, um, and I think it means firstborn or something. Second, second born. born. It means second. Thank you. It means second born. And when I asked him, I said, well, would there have been a Sambo? And he goes, yes. You know, a little further inland, if you go closer to this group, it would have been Sambo. Because it's, this is actually in my next book. But the reality is, is that the earliest African that our family can trace. And, you know, of course, it needs to be confirmed. But as far as we can see, we trace back to a man named Sambo. And I've never known exactly where he was from. And some of my reading at one point, it, it said that the original people from uh, that, that came into the eastern shore of Maryland were from Benin. And then another thing that I read said Senegambia. And now I realize, well, Senegambia is basically Senegal. But it's the, what did he say? It was the, it was the English word for that. Um, yeah, and Senegal is the Arabic word. And so, but he said that Sambo was an actual name there. I, that literally, I felt like I met my ancestor for the very first time, like really met him because I always thought he was named Sambo when he got here because that's not an African name, but it is. Mm. That was his name. He had his name. That, I mean, it's still kind of settling in. That was his name. They didn't rename him. But it was so early in the system, maybe they just didn't even think to do that. They weren't trying to break them so much then as they started doing in the 1700s because he got here in the 1680s. Mm -hmm. My God. Powerful. It's like you met a cousin. It's yeah. Like yeah. 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 It's all incredible. I I love how he um, was saying um, about how all of this is hidden hidden history, and hidden history is what keeps us from fully um, being who we are, like fully liberated, fully engaging, mm -hmm. and so 
Um, I think I'm just looking around as we've been driving and seeing like just how beautiful this place looks and yeah. how like I'm like, why is there not like a marker? Like, here's where it happened. Here's where the people died. Yes. Here's where the people were like taken. Here's the wheel. You know, he was describing that scene of the punishment. The wheel. And um, describing, you know, if an enslaved person ran away yes. um, for the first time, they would be their ears will be um caught and if they ran away a second time they, and they would be branded right and the second time they would be caught in the in the thigh and um and so on and then the third time it was like punished by death yeah. and and there would be like these wheels where they would be all of their limbs sorry for being so graphic but it would be all chopped off and broken uh, broken every single bone broken mm-hmm. and then they were left to bleed and die as a public scene and so i'm picturing this i'm like why is there not a, a marker that signals the dead like it just all seems like you know it's like you look around and it's just beautiful green grass and trees and um and to me it's just part of like Even to this day, I mean, I would put a huge sign that says never again, you know, or like yes. something like, yes. here's, here's where people died. And so I'm really surprised that like, I don't see, I mean, it's just <laughs> left. So one thing that really strikes me about this area is the water. And also the trees. The trees just shoot kind of straight out of the ground and it's so thick. And one of the one of the things that it, it's like making my it's making my childhood vision of my ancestors come to life in a way that it has never done before because we're we're literally rolling through the land where these songs my mom used to sing came from, the slave spirituals, like wade in the water. So right next to us is a swamp that's been going the entire length of the road that we're driving. And that was the place where runaway slaves would go. And they would literally go under the water in order to not be seen and also go into the water in order to not have the dogs pick up their scent. They would lose their scent when they went into the water. They couldn't be tracked anymore. So the waterways were actually the path to freedom. And my mom used to sing me to sleep every night, singing Wade in the Water. You know, Wade in the Water. Wade in the Water, children. Wade in the Water. God's gone to trouble. The water, wade in the water, wade in the water, children, wade in the water, God's gone to trouble, the water. On Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod.
Sugarland, Texas is home to a revelation. In the years following the Civil War, Congress passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, abolishing slavery, establishing birthright citizenship, and establishing the right of every male citizen to vote. These Reconstruction Amendments presented a grave threat to the already devastated Southern agrarian economy, which relied on the free labor of more than 4 million enslaved men, women, and children before the war. The Reconstruction Amendments also presented an existential challenge to the idea of white supremacy. An idea that had been embedded in the Constitution through the Three-Fifths Compromise embedded in the Immigration Act of 1790 through the declaration that only white men can become naturalized citizens, and through judicial law, such as the Dred Scott decision, which declared that a free black man has no rights that a white man need abide. White supremacy was the air America breathed before Reconstruction. Now, afterwards, the air was being sucked out of the white supremacist South. In response, Southern legislatures crafted a web of race codes that criminalized blackness and directed streams of black boys and men back into the very plantations from which they had just been freed. The scheme was called peonage. Mr. Reginald Moore is the founder of the Convict Leasing and Labor Project, based in Sugarland, Texas. Can you explain the convict lease system? What was it? Convict lease system was uh, was what the state, the federal Thirteenth Amendment said you were free unless convicted of a crime. That came about December the fifth, eighteen sixty-five. After Juneteenth here in Texas. 1865, when the blacks got, they were the last ones to hear it here in Texas, two years after they had been freed. Wow. But uh, then six months later, the federal government, to appease the Southerners, passed the 13th Amendment, said you're free unless convicted of a crime. And then in December, then January of uh, 1866, the state of Texas legislated and in the law here. So it was federal law that was legislated into a state law. So that's what we have here. But uh, what was the law? The law said. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did the law say? What was the law? The law says you're free unless convicted of a crime. If you could be convicted of a crime, you can go back into servitude. I see. So it basically so. codified the 13th Amendment into right. the state law. Right. And you can get it word for word mm-hmm. off of our uh, posters and off our website. So and on, on the way over here, one of the things that you pointed out to us was the original prison building, the convict leasing building. And you said that that was, I think it was Jester One, and it was built in 1888. Is that 1886. right? 1886. 1886. Right. So right after peonage started, convict leasing started, it, like kind of literally within 10 years, within nine years of the end of Reconstruction. Correct. Liz Peterson is a board member with the Convict Leasing Project. She and Suzette Montgomery, Communications Director of the Convict Leasing and Labor Project, came along with us as we wound our way through Sugarland. That's really what our organization has been all about, making sure the true history of convict leasing in Sugarland in Fort Bend County is told, because the temptation is to sanitize it for everybody's comfort and convenience. Maybe now we'll actually acknowledge that it happened, which is a step in the right direction. But at the Convict Leasing and Labor Project, we want to make sure that people know what really happened on these plantations, what these men and boys really went through. And... um, all of America needs to learn this so that we don't repeat these same mistakes. I just come with passing the street here, leaving my house, going up to uh, the site and the, uh, the area of, of uh, research. And we just passed a street called Plantation Valley. There's one light, one block from my subdivision. And how they're still glamorizing all these plantation names and names, things that happened during the antebellum period, you know, Sienna Plantation, Plantation Grove, and and all these different names that are streets and subdivision, they're glamorizing it to this day. They're not remorseful of it because they are still advocating it through streets, names, and monuments and memorials. 
And so you were saying that this is the main road in Sugarland that yeah. we're on. And so off of this main road, we have Old Richmond. Mm-hmm. We have Panhandle Drive. We had Plantation Row, Plantation Valley. Valley. My goodness. And now we're driving a wheel about three or four miles from the sugar mill. And then you'll be coming to other subdivisions that are named, uh, some of them named out the plantations. So what you're saying is that, just to be clear, you're saying that where all of these work camps were are now subdivisions built on top of what used to be work camps and prisons. Exactly. Like people's homes. And the University of Houston at Sugarland is built on top of what we believe to have been a camp. And we suspect there may have been bodies buried there, but haven't been able to investigate that. And wherever there, was, wherever there was a camp, there was a cemetery, just like where this cemetery 95 was, it's called the LS1 camp. And so we had other camps around it. Wherever the camps were, there were burial sites. Now we come, this here's the site where the white side lived at, okay, called the hill. On the other side of the, the, right here behind us was a black area called the slave quarters called Mayfield Park. This here is this here is uh, the sugar mill. See that old, the building there? Oh, wow. And see these, see these street decents. Uh, someone yeah. put that for all the time and uh, stuff, but they still don't talk about this, about the convict lease system in it. Okay. Wait, was it, okay, what, what on, now? What'd you, what'd on you that, right here on that bridge where you've seen all that art, yes, they yes. don't talk about the convict lease system. They talk about how, how the slave built it, but they don't, they don't mention the convict lease system oh, in it. Oh, wow. Okay. And so and this, this is a hidden history mill. that people don't want, want to hear, and they want to erase this history and rebrand it in a different way instead of telling the history to happen. And I just want to, I just want to say that we're driving past a lot of signs that say Imperial. This is with Imperial Sugar. Imperial Sugar is a company that was that came around and uh, it was named that in the 1800s. But the Kempners bought this this here from Cunningham and Ellis. And they named this here Imperial Sugar. So the work camp was that, a sugar mill. Exactly. So people people were convict leased to work at a sugar mill. And sugar mills and and, and other mills all throughout this area in the four county region. And that's some of the the, the pot there is what they used to used to used to make the the We saw that pot on the right. Whitney plantation. Exactly. That exact same flat pot is what they mm-hmm. used to use uh, in slavery. Exactly. This area right here is uh-huh. called the Mayfield Park, okay? This is the quarters? This is the quarters. The old plantations became prisons and the old plantation owners became wardens. After, after slavery was over, that's when they created the new slavery system out of that 13th Amendment. And they, that's how they came about it. Cunningham and Ellis, they were old plantation owners and they became wardens of the whole criminal justice system. Um, well, cause like, when I look at the prison systems and stuff, the most like glaring, I guess, like resemblance to slavery would be like Angola in Louisiana, yeah. their big state prison. Mm-hmm. And like, there's documentaries, like most people who go there have 25 years minimum. Yeah. Um, and what happens, they don't even have fences out, you know, because this 30 miles from any civilization, they say, you know, you can run if you want to. You know, you're not going to go anywhere. Angola was named after uh, Angola, uh, Africa. Right. And uh, they are Texas. We used to be totally self-sufficient here. And that's the old, that's the one camp prison right there. Okay. And right God, right wow. on the, see that building on the other like side of it? Wow. Right here, uh, one of the trees, uh, that's what a, what a warden's house was. And they used to come up under the bridge. Now it's that White House that was built, that was over there. They tore down. Oh, that's the central unit there. The central unit is a big white, it's a white apartment building with a bunch of people. I mean, a bunch of, it looks like an apartment building from far away, but it was a prison. That was a prison. And then that's where the cemetery is at behind those trees. And it's in a huge field with a bunch of trees and also train tracks running across. And that's when he wrote the lead bill, wrote that midnight train, you know, about the trains come through and drive the prisons off. And now we see that all those plantation road trees, that was how you get to this prison right here. Let's oh do this God. entrance right here. He, they have a, a plantation row of trees that like the iconic picture of the, the trees that line the path into a plantation. That's how you get to the prison is through a line of trees. So it looks beautiful. Right. And oh that was a central God. unit. They didn't see the prisons here didn't integrate until 1968. 
yeah, they were segregated. They had the white prison over here, and then they had the blacks at the black prison building, which I'll show y'all when we leave here. So the white prisoners went through the line of trees that looked beautiful? Right. And then the black prisoners... They had another camp called, it was called a two camp. <clears throat> and the last camp they had was, was over here was segregated. This year, Chigland Heritage Society honored Ellis, who was part of the Cunningham and Ellis, uh, who had the first original uh, working successful contract with the state Lisa Cumbick leasing and Eldridge who who owned the who was a plantation owner who uh formed the uh uh sugar formed the uh Imperial Sugar with with Kempner, Mr. Kempner. I uh and uh and they made a commemorative Christmas ornament named after Ellis and Eldridge and this was twenty eighteen. Uh, glorifying and honoring them when they were heavily influenced and created the convict lease system and established it even far more with the uh, with the Kempners and the Imperial Sugar through Eldridge. So the Imperial Sugar established the convict lease system through well, the two men that were commemorated on the ornament. Is that get it that right? Well, uh, the convict lease system was already established through Ellis and Cunningham. So Ellis and, then, and yeah. Then Ellis and Eldridge got together. Then they worked and worked that land for a while uh, through through that lease that they had. So the distribution of this commemorative ornament is really symbolic of how the city of Sugarland was treating the discovery of the the Sugarland ninety five. They were paying lip service to the fact that it was a historical find this historical discovery, but they they just couldn't appreciate the magnitude and the meaning behind what these folks endured. And what Mr. Moore has been instrumental in doing in the Convict Leasing and Labor Project is making sure that this doesn't get a five-minute, gee, we're so sorry this happened, and, and move on with our lives, but it becomes an integral part of Fort Bend County history. And it's, you know, it's not taught in Texas schools right now. It's not taught anywhere in the nation, pretty much, unless you're in, you're a history major in college. And people don't really understand when we say convict leasing, they think, well, if you don't want to do the, the time, don't do the crime. Right. And what they don't understand is that, well, for one thing, the completely dehum- the complete dehumanization of these individuals, working them to absolute death for the, to extract the maximum profit, but also the fact that most of them had not done any crimes or the crime that they'd done had, was so insignificant or even made up that they didn't get fair trials, they didn't get any trials to speak of, and their main guilt was being a, a pretty strong-looking young black man who could work the sugar fields and the refinery. Or black boys, actually. I, a- I absolutely, black the majority boys. Majority of the people in there were teenagers. Boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they were well, tried as some, some as young as eleven. Mm-hmm. Eleven years old, we got ten one, years we got old. One in there that was fourteen, but you know they had them in that eleven. They had also had a juvenile farm, and they worked them too. This place they treated them so bad they deemed this to the hell hole on the brazzers because of the atrocities the way they were treated. Nobody wanted to come here because it was they it was it was a horrible conditions, and you know, and they call this area the hell hole on the brazzers. On the brasses? On the brasses. Brasses, because of the brasses river. It was right up the street, up the way down. We got uh, it's approximately 31, 33 grades in here. The earliest grade we have, 1912. But I would would really say and believe that a few of these guys in here was part of the convict leasing system. Although the convict leasing system was over when they were put in this particular cemetery, the one with the Sugarland 95, the latest bodies we have in there is 1910. 
Uh, so, so before uh, I would imagine some of these guys that were in this cemetery here was, was still in slavery, was still in a convict lease system because they were probably in here before 1910. Cunningham and Ellis on this particular land or area of 50 some thousand acres they had accumulated uh, after the old plant, uh, other plantation owners went in a destitute situation. Slavery was over, they accumulated a lot of properties. Then that's when they got an agreement with the state to lease out the whole penal system since they didn't have a way to house them other than in the uh, Huntsville unit, which was uh, which was the uh, administrative building. So they didn't have any other. But these guys had land compared to the first uh, leasees who didn't have own land. So they leased out the whole prison farm. And, uh, and that's where we are today, standing on part of the property that Cunningham and Ellis and them leased out. So what did the men do here at Sugarland? What was what was their work that they released out to do? Well, predominantly during that period in the early 1800s, it was uh, sugar cane. It was sugar cane, and that's what they, to feed the sugar mills and and all that. And cane, sugar cane was king, and and they had four counties that participated in that. And how many men do you know? How many men were swept up into convict leasing? Well, we don't know. It could it could run. It probably run into. Uh, thinking it was about 3,500 that died. So I imagine it was probably between 30,000 to 40,000 in my estimate that probably ran through this convict lease system over a period of in Texas. between eight and 1878 uh, all the way up until 1910. So I would imagine that many. And you're talking that, about Texas in particular? Just in Texas. Wow. Right. 3,500, we know probably that, that died. Uh, that's, that's accounted for. But how many? How many do you imagine actually went through the system? Probably about the mouth reckon about thirty thousand. I have to wow. check. I just want numbers. to make sure I heard that right. Right. Oh my goodness! And so, can you tell the story of the moment that you realized there were bones under the soil, or might be? Well, they had came, they did an archaeological center archaeological out, out here that I recommended once I held them accountable that they had to do laws, preservation laws according to the state, which they were moving forward without doing the archaeological studies. When I made them aware of that, they didn't want to hear it, but I got the state involved, and the state made them do the, the archaeological studies. Now, how did you do it? Like, why you? Like, how? So well, you- I was a guardian here at the cemetery for about, uh, about nine or ten years, and uh, so I've been watching and understanding what was going on before the guardian. I was trying to get them pres- uh, res- reparations when I knew that this had been a, a prison site and a com- a flavorist area and the convict lease system had evolved here that I wanted to give them some type of restitution reparation. And so I was fighting for that when the state was going to sell this land. And so I followed it from the state to the sale of land to the sale of the city of Sugar Land and kept following it over the years until the uh, Newland Development sold this piece of land to the 4th Independent School District. So you used to be a prison correctional officer Correct. on this land. Like that's right up the road so- at the Jester Unit, which was all encompassed and owned by the state and County and Ellis, but I was at the, right. the Jester Unit. And it was while you were the Harlem, there. Formula Harlem Plantation. Uh, it was there. There that you began to think something's not right here. There's probably people under the ground. Right. It was probably had a vision at that time that it wasn't something right, but I didn't know where to look until uh-huh. 2001. Uh-huh. Then when I went to selling this land, I went to Austin and I found out the history of that old uh, Flanagan house, which is the warden's house where the guy led Bill the song his way out. That's when I found out about the land, what everything had transpired on it. In Slavery by Another Name by Douglas Blackman, he says that peonage was a system of terror and brutality developed to continue to uphold the Southern economic structure. So, Mr. Moore, what terror took place here in Sugarland? How were they terrorized? They were terrorized because they were victimized. They were treated mm-hmm. inhumanely. How? In what and, ways? And uh, yeah. forced them, working them to death, working them without proper food, without proper clothing, without proper accommodations, sleeping accommodations. There were beatings, torture, for not uh, getting a quantity of, of uh, cotton or sugar cane the cane that they were supposed to be getting. And so they just treated them, beat them, worked them, you know, beyond limits that were considered humane. You said something earlier in our conversations about 
the men being expendable. Can you explain that? Like, how, why were they expendable? Because they had a steady flow of, of uh, labor that was coming through the, the jail system that ended up going into the prison system where they could pick up people on all, all type of trumped-up charges, vagrancy charge. Uh, they had a pig law got caught stealing a wild pig could get 15 years or similar to the crack law and the sentence disparity. That's what kind of got me interested in. They knew that they could have a ready force of individuals that they can penalize and victimize to put into the system to be able to work out crimes or fines that they were putting on them. So they had a steady flow of individuals come through. So the people who were here were expendable compared to during slavery when they considered them property because they had a vested interest in an individual. Well, this time they didn't. So they could work them and treat them like they wanted. They died, they just go and call for another one. So they were expendable. How did the men and boys survive? Do you know? Do you have a sense of what were their, their mechanisms or their, their practices of resistance? Well, some of them would cut their foot off or cut a finger off or gouge their eyes out or cut the, 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 the keyless tendons in their legs so they wouldn't be fit to work. And they call this area the hell hole on the brazzers. People say they'd rather work inside or go anywhere but here in Texas and down here in Sugarland to work. And so they, uh, that's why they kind of got out of because the mortality rate here was three to five years of working, working as condition. You either dead or, or unfit to work, you know, uh, because of the condition that you have been put up under. So that they, uh, they did a lot of things like that to try to get from having to come to the fields. Sometimes with self mutilation. It's very similar to slavery, actually. That well, that I was some it, of the resistance me- mechanisms that I, they used there. I call it slavery by a new name. Douglas Blackman called it slavery by another name. I call it slavery by a new name. And it was a form of slavery. Mm-hmm. It was worse than slavery. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. do you, what do you, what is the lesson of Sugarland for you? Well, the lesson is that a lot of people profited and a lot of people who profited off the ones who were exploited were not recognized, were not, uh, they should be vindicated. But a lot of them, they saying they were criminals. It was actually free people who were put into criminal situations as far as crimes that were put against them. So they should be recognized. It should be a memorial, it should be a museum, uh, put up monuments to explain what happened after the Civil War. The thing that strikes me is how deep this evil goes. There is such a thing as a spiritual lie. It occurs to me the principal lie of slavery and peonage is that black and brown bodies exist to maintain the comfort of white ones. Period. This is a lie from the pit of hell. And Sugarland has revealed one place of many where peonage was established, where hell came up to play on earth. There really are no words to hold this evil, so those of African descent on this pilgrimage will perform a ritual that was handed down to us by our ancestors. We will pour libations on the earth where the bodies of the men were buried, on the very land where they dropped. We speak words to you that you never got to hear in your last moments in this life. We see you. We love you. We honor you. In commemoration of the dead, we offer a moment of silence. Walking forward on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. This Freedom Road podcast episode was recorded on site at the Whitney Plantation in Edgar, Louisiana, and in Sugarland, Texas, in partnership with Sojourners and the Work of the People. 
This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We really do promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month when we continue our pilgrimage through the story of immigration and exploitation in San Antonio and at the border in McAllen, Texas. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join us on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.